everyone. My name is Laurel Wagner, and I am the supervising attorney over at the Rion Immigrant Center. Um, I'm going to be giving this training today with Jonah Hahn, who is our DOJ accredited representative. If you guys are new to immigration law, you might not know what an accredited representative is. Um, so the Department of Justice accredited, accredits um, employees of not-for-profits to provide immigration legal services after they have completed extensive training and had experience uh, doing that work sort of as paralegals or community uh, activists. And so Jonah is our accredited rep. And so he gets to act effectively like a lawyer before the immigration agencies. Um, our training today is gonna be sort of in four parts. Um, Jonah is gonna take the first two and give you guys sort of an overview of different immigration benefits and processes here in the United States as well as some frequently used terms in immigration law, so you'll feel comfortable engaging with folks in the forms workshop. And then I'll take over and give an overview of the forms workshop itself um, and some tips for completing forms and client interaction and working with interpreters during those workshops. So over to you, Jonah. Great, wonderful. Thank you everyone for joining today and for those that are watching this um, later. Uh, thanks for taking the time to watch this video. Uh, for those who are here today, um, if you have questions at any point, uh, please feel free to submit them with the question and answer uh, function through Zoom. Uh, we will either try and do our best to answer it in the moment, or if it is more pertinent to answer that uh, question at a later time, we'll end up doing so. Uh, but the beginning, uh, to begin here, we're just gonna give you a broad sense of what immigration benefits are. Um, so you have a better sense of when you're assisting individuals in our community with various forms, what forms they're seeking and to get a better sense of how this all fits together because immigration law is actually a bit of a labyrinth that involves multiple uh, government agencies um, that sometimes uh, relate to each other in counterintuitive ways. So you can see here that uh, immigration law is housed within the executive branch of government, although of course Congress and the Supreme Court end up um, involving themselves quite a bit in the uh, passage of laws or in the determination about um, whether a variety of cases are constitutional or are weighing in. Um, the Supreme Court will, will sometimes weigh in after cases are appealed um, from the Board of Immigration Appeals to a circuit court and then potentially all the way up to a Supreme Court. But you can see here that there are actually um, three different departments that all play a role in the immigration process. The Department of State the Department of Homeland Security and the Department of Justice. Um, so the Department of Justice, within the Department of Justice, there is the Immigration Office of Immigration, the, excuse me, the Executive Office of Immigration Review, uh, which is where immigration court is. So individuals that are in removal proceedings um, will be uh, within the Executive Office of Immigration Review and Im immigration judges are actually employees of uh, that particular sub-agency of the Department of Justice. And then Cases that end up being approved, or sorry, appealed from immigration court go to the Board of Immigration Appeals, which is a higher body, again, within the Department of Justice that oversees decisions at the um, Executive Office of Immigration Review. Most of the, not most of, basically all of the work that uh, you're going to be doing um, when you're assisting individuals at our forms workshops will be about uh, filling out forms that will be uh, going to the Department of Homeland Security. Um, with the exception of Freedom of Information Act requests that might be going to the Executive Office of Immigration Review. 
Um, but within the Department of Homeland Security, there is the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services. Um, they are in charge of all uh, domestic uh, applications um, uh, for immigration benefits, uh, that whether that is uh, applying for citizenship, renewing a green card, applying for DACA, um, applying for asylum, that is all housed um, within the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services. Then Customs and Border Patrol, uh, they are responsible for, uh, in their terms, protecting the security of the border, um, whether that be from um, individuals crossing without um, a valid visa or from a variety of goods um, or contraband trying to be smuggled into the United States. Um, ICE's job is to enforce immigration laws within um, the United States itself. Um, and so they also have the jurisdiction to uh, detain um, individuals who are violating such laws. Um, and then the Office of General Counsel is sort of a legal arm uh, within the Department of Homeland Security. One thing that is a bit uh, confusing as it relates to family-based petitions, um, which is something that we, you might end up assisting folks with, is that although they will do the initial part of the application through the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services um, agency, when it is actually sent to the Department of State, an entirely different government agency that ends up being in charge of administering the immigrant visa and scheduling the, um, uh, the ultimate uh, interview um, at an embassy in a foreign country. Um, and what is particularly frustrating is that these two departments are not good at sharing information. Um, so it's if you end up working with individuals who are doing family-based uh, immigration benefits, uh, such as petitioning for a spouse or a child or um, a sibling, um, it's important to know that while the first part of the process will be happening with U.S. Uh, CIS, um, the second part of the process will actually be with the Department of State. So uh, immigrants in general fall into five major categories, and we'll explore each of these categories in a little bit more detail temporary lawful residents, asylees and refugees, legal permanent residents, undocumented immigrants, and naturalized U.S. citizens. Um, so temporary lawful residents, uh, this is a very expansive category that includes multiple types of visas and statuses, each with its own purpose and its own uh, statutes of limitation. Um, there are different rules regarding their length of stay, their work authorization, the ability to travel outside the United States, and their eligibility for public benefits depending on the type of uh, visa or status that they have. So some examples of these kinds of temporary lawful residents that you might be familiar with are, are temporary protected status, a student visa, a temporary worker, um, a visitor, a fiance, a victim of a crime who submitted a U visa. And again, all of these different types of statuses come with different rules regarding how long they are lawfully allowed to stay in the United States and, and what kind of benefits they can apply for um, in, in, with other government uh, agencies um, or within uh, USCIS and, and within the realm of immigration. Uh, the next large category is asylees and refugees. So both asylees and refugees must prove a well-founded fear of persecution in their home country due to one of these five um, categories, race, religion, membership in a particular social group, political opinion, and or national origin. Uh, the major difference is that asylees apply for this status within the United States, while refugees apply abroad. Um, 
usually at a refugee camp, and then they are, if they're in, in the international context, they are deemed to be a refugee, and then they can designate the United States as their intended country. Um, and then if that's able to, the United States will end up receiving them, while as asylees, again, we'll do this within the United States, and they can apply affirmatively, which means that they're not already in removal proceedings, or uh, defensively, which means that they'll be doing that in immigration court. Um, and both asylee and refugee status uh, can be held indefinitely and allows um, for an individual to then uh, convert or adjust their status from asylee or refugee to uh, legal permanent residence, um, which is a fancy legal way of saying having a green card after they've been in the United States uh, for one year. Um, so that is that particular category. Um, now, uh, we will move on to the next one, which are lawful permanent residents. So as I said, this is a formal term for a person with a green card. Uh, you might be familiar with that. Um, it's called a green card because originally the, the permanent resident card was green. Um, legal permanent residents have the right to live and work in the United States permanently. Um, they, that's to say that even if their green card expires, the status itself doesn't expire, but they do need to renew their green card every 10 years. Um, legal permanent residents apply um, or can apply to become a U.S. citizen act five years after uh, receiving that status or three years in the case of individuals who are married to U.S. citizens. Um, but importantly, uh, even though they have the right to live and work in the United States permanently, that doesn't mean that they can't actually be subject to deportation or removal um, if they commit certain crimes or violate uh, the uh, a variety of different laws. They are um, they can be placed into removal proceedings, and then the government will have to present the case about why um, they uh, should be removed um, from from the country. And then there, it's important to note that there are actually very limited pathways to lawful permanent residence. Um, so you have to have a close familial relationship. Um, this doesn't mean that you can apply, for example, for your niece or your nephew or your aunt or your uncle. Um, it's a very specific, very nuclear-focused uh, definition. Um, you can also get a lawful permanent residence through your employer, um, through a diversity visa lottery, which was created um, to try and increase the chances that immigrants from countries that were historically not allowed to immigrate to the United States do so, although it is a lottery, so the chances are still quite low that you end up being able to come to the United States through the diversity visa lottery. Um, Crime victim status. So I mentioned this earlier, but if you're a victim of a crime and you end up cooperating with the United States, uh, with any US law enforcement, you can ultimately try and uh, get a, a status that would allow you to ultimately get a green card or uh, refugee asylee status. Um, um, there are a couple other ones as well, but it's not worth getting into for, for this overview. Um, then there's the category of undocumented immigrants. So undocumented immigrants are individuals who uh, don't have any status in, in the United States. That could be because they entered the United States without going through a port of entry and were not inspected. Um, so people who were able to get in through a border without any sort of inspection without a visa or individuals who entered with a visa but then overstayed their temporary status. Um, the vast majority of undocumented immigrants, unfortunately, have no pathway to lawful status as current um, laws, as the current laws um, dictate. Uh, that's always something that you're able to pressure your uh, congressional representatives to try and change. And um, in fact, you know, the Biden administration came into office promising to expand 
pathways to lawful status, but um, unfortunately have not done so yet. And uh, crucially in your head, when you're thinking about this, you can know that to be undocumented means you have no work permit, no uh, authorization to be employed in the United States, no social security number, no driver's license um, in 38 states. Um, if you could just go back, uh, Laura, uh, a couple of slides. Thanks, thank you. Um, of course, Massachusetts uh, recently had actually passed legislation to allow anyone to get a driver's license without, um, uh, regardless of immigration status, although that's currently on the ballot to be decided. If you're undocumented, you cannot travel outside the United States without um, highly uh, risking the chance that you will not be able to return um, for a very long time. Uh, you are subject to arrest and detention at any point, and you have very limited access to public benefits and health care, um, even if you're in a state like Massachusetts. Um, so that's that's what that means. And then the final category is naturalized U.S. citizens. So this, again, relates back to that earlier slide about lawful permanent residents. So they can apply to become a U.S. citizen after five years, or if you've been married to a U.S. citizen after only three, there are subject to certain limitations. So that means that certain minor children who are lawful permanent residents in the United States and are living in custody of their a US uh, of their parent automatically become citizens when their parents become US citizens. This is called derivative or uh, or acquisition depending on, on the context. Um, and the other thing too, oh well, as the next slide says, so children born abroad to US citizens acquire citizenship at birth. Um, so in, this just means there are two different forms. One's about applying to naturalize, and one's about applying to prove that you already are a citizen and, and you need a certificate of citizenship, and they are separate forms uh, with USCIS. Um, uh, I see that uh, Michael, Michael, Michael asked a question about did the majority of clients fit into any one of these citizenship categories? So um, it's important to remember that actually there's only one category of uh, there's only one category of immigrants that are citizens. Um, there are a lot. There are the other categories. Of individuals are not actually citizens. Um, but uh, I would say that the vast majority of people that we're going to be helping are either lawful permanent residents or individuals with some sort of temporary um, lawful status, like TPS or DACA. Um, you. In the context in which we're helping people who are already uh, U.S. citizens, that would likely be in specific family-based uh, immigration circumstances. So they're trying to petition for a relative outside the United States to be able to come here. Um, and we will, of course, be helping lawful permanent residents either renew their green card or apply for naturalization. Those are the cases you're most likely to see in these forms workshops. So immigration law, um, as, as Laura indicated, I'm not an attorney, I'm just a, an accredited representative, so I cannot speak about how other branches or other um, aspects of, of the legal profession love acronyms, but immigration law is really like an alphabet soup and has quite a few specific terms that um, might not exactly make sense or might not be counterintuitive, so we're just going to kind of go through them, and I'm not going to read the definitions, but I'm going to highlight a couple that you're more likely to see when you fill out uh, paperwork with uh, individuals so that you get a sense of maybe what that means. Um, and of course, if there's one in particular that while you're reading the slide doesn't make sense, please feel free to flag it and I can provide some more context. And Noah, um, we'll give you a copy of the slides afterwards so you can 
read through them again before any forms workshops. So you have them as a reference point. Exactly. Um, so uh, we already uh, went over these three, so I don't think it, it's necessary to um, discuss them in more detail. Um, I want to go to the next slide. I think that there's a couple there that might be more worthwhile to identify. So um, DACA and temporary protected status. Uh, the reason I just want to highlight these is that a lot of the individuals that will that you'll be interacting with um, at the forms workshop will probably have one of these statuses. Although, of course, uh, DACA is in legal jeopardy right now as a result of a recent Fifth Circuit case. Um, so it's possible that, uh, unfortunately, that policy will be deemed unconstitutional. Uh, we certainly hope not, but it, as it stands right now, the program is certainly in limbo. A temporary protected status um, is, uh, a, is a, a particular um, temporary status, as the name suggests, for individuals who are from a specific country and that due to conditions in that country, prevents them from really that could be war, natural disaster, civil strife. It's designated by the attorney general. Um, and uh, in, we, we work with many, many people to help them apply for um, PPS as an initial, after it's been initially designated or to um, redesignate re their, their TPS. Um, so we talked about uh, who, um, what individuals are undocumented and, and what that means. Uh, just one thing to note is that EWI is a, is a, is a legalese term within the immigration ter uh, world that just refers to someone who entered without inspection. Um, and that is significant because if someone entered without inspection, uh, they are going to be undocumented. Um, and so sometimes when it asks for manner of entry or status, um, when you arrive at the United States, you can write EWI and USCIS will understand what you mean. You're also allowed to um, write no lawful status as well if you prefer to do so. Um, so the, the, the ones that I just want to highlight here are the top three. Um, so the petitioner and beneficiary, those are specific to um, family-based, in our context, family-based uh, immigration forms. So the petitioner is going to be the individual who is sponsoring it in, in a family relative to come to the United States. Well, as the beneficiary is that individual who is going to ultimately be applying for an immigrant visa and applying to become a legal permanent resident and immigrate to the United States. Um, that's relevant because on the forms it will ask for information about the petitioner and information about the beneficiary. And it's important to keep in mind uh, which term corresponds to which person. So the petitioner will be the US citizen or the legal permanent resident in the United States that is uh, seeking for one of their family members to come. The alien registration number is a number that a USCIS um, or uh, Customs and Border Patrol arise, depending on how the person ends up interacting with the immigration universe, um, ends up by utilizing to identify um, individuals on work permits or on green cards. You can find this number very easily because it will just say USCIS number and then it will have an eight or nine digit number. Um, if it's an originally an eight digit number because they came, they were in the United States at a time when they only needed eight digits. At this point, USCIS puts a zero before that. So there will always be nine digits. And, and this is relevant because on all of the forms that you fill out, it will ask for the person's alien registration number. 
sort of the social security number of immigration law stays with exactly. you forever. All right. Okay, so uh, just uh, again to highlight how these are relevant to when you end up interacting with folks at the forms workshop an I-94 card or is an arrival departure document. So when you enter the United States um, well, uh, through a port of entry and are inspected and admitted, uh, Customs and Border Patrol will assign you an I-94 number, which is specifically for that entry. And on many forms, it will ask you for the I-94 number, um, which you can either figure out through if the, if the person received a physical paper or if they ended up receiving an electronic um, I-94, you're able to access that through the Customs and Border Patrol I-94 website by putting in information about the individual, their name, date of birth, passport um, number, and the country that issued the passport. And then I talked about the um, employment authorization document, which is commonly known as a work permit. Um, and that, you know, if you're helping someone renew that, um, that work permit will contain a lot of information um, that will be relevant to filling up whatever form it is, whether it's uh, just a work permit renewal or um, if they're applying for TPS or DACA, because that's the status that ultimately allows them to get a work permit. Um, you know, that uh, the work permit will be filled with information about when they, uh, what their A number is, uh, when the permit is valid until the category, things like that. So that's why it's important to know that. And then Finally, the naturalization certificate is proof of U.S. citizenship. It's issued at the time of an oath ceremony and there's no expiration date. So once you um, have a naturalization certificate, you're able to use it for the rest of your life to prove that you're a U.S. citizen. And so I'll turn it over to Laura. All right, before I move on to talking more about what happens at our firm's workshops, um, if you wanna join us, we're gonna have one on October 20th as well as additional ones in November and December at the BBA building. So you are welcome to join us for one or more of those workshops. Um, is, are there any other questions sort of about the things that Jonah went over? I know it's a lot of information. I've been at this 10 years and I still get confused and new things pop up. Um, so I see here, must the beneficiary and the petitioner share a close familial relationship? Yes. Um, there are specific categories that the law allows you to petition for. Um, so U.S. citizens can petition for their children, any age, any marital status, their siblings, their parents, and their spouses. That's it. Permanent residents can petition for their spouses and their unmarried children, and that's it. Anything more extensive than that, um, you are not eligible to petition for your relative. more. All right. I will move on. But if you think of things as we're going through, of course, keep adding them to the chat. We'll have some time at the end too to answer any additional questions that come up. Okay. So prior to the workshop, prior to you guys showing up, um, we are going to be screening all of the clients. Every person, every client who comes to Forms Workshop will have first had a consultation with Jonah, myself, one of the other attorneys who works in our office to make sure that they're eligible for the relief and that their application type makes sense to go through this, this sort of forms workshop. Um, 
And we will take all of these people and pre-assign one of them to each of you based on the case type and the language needs and those sorts of things. So before the work forms workshop, you will get from us, from Jonah or myself, a Google Drive folder that contains any documents the client you will be working with has provided to us. So if we already have a copy of their green card or their work permit or their I-94 that Jonah was talking about before, you'll be able to see it. Copies of the blank forms that you will be completing with the client. So if you're going to be helping them renew their green card, we'll have the form you need to complete to do that. A copy of our control sheet for the relevant application type to help you complete the application. So we have usually, it's a, a sort of two-page document that you can go through that helps you understand, you know, these are the red flag questions for this application type. These are the parts of the form that you absolutely have to complete. These are the documents that are relevant to this application type. So you have that in front of you. And a training video done by either myself or Jonah that goes over the specific application type you will be completing and walks you through, you know, any additional information about that application type. And with a screen share shows you how to fill it out. Um, we did it this way because there are a lot of different application types uh, that we do and would have been a really long training to do all of them at once. And so we've done those so you can have each one each time you come to make sure that you've got that refresher and you're prepared for what you'll be doing at a specific forms workshop. Generally, you're gonna be looking at things like Jonah said, like helping people renew their work permits, replace their green cards, renew their DACA, get TPS or re-register for TPS, apply to be a citizen, or petition for their relatives who are abroad. Um, you may also have somebody who needs to request their records from immigration through the Freedom of Information Act. Um, and so you'll be helping them make that request. All right. So at the workshop itself, both the clients and all of you, the volunteers, will come in and check in with our staff once you arrive at the workshop. We'll have all the tables numbered since you'll be pre-assigned with people. We'll pre-assign you to a table and we'll direct you to your table. Um, once your client is there too, you can introduce yourself, confirm with the client, you know, what you're going to be doing that day and just, you know, get to work completing the forms that they're there to complete. Um, to the extent that you have a client who does not speak English and we work in immigration law, so there are a lot of those. Um, we are also going to have volunteer interpreters. Um, you know, we've been asking people when they register to tell us their language capacity. So if you happen to be a Spanish speaker, a French speaker, even a Haitian Creole speaker, um, an Arabic speaker, you know, let us know that because we can try to assign you a client who also speaks those languages. Um, but you know, if you're just an English speaker, we'll have volunteer interpreters to help you. Um, through the workshop as well. All right. So during the workshop, you'll be able to use the control sheets and the provided documents to complete all of the relevant forms. You are welcome to use your personal computer to do this if you would rather sort of type in to the forms. They're all fillable PDFs. Um, and then you can save those forms and share them with us through that same Google Drive folder. We will also have hard you know, physical paper copies of the forms at the workshop. And so you can also handwrite into the forms um, at the workshop. If you've ever been to like Project Citizenship, Citizenship Workshops, um, the ones they do in person, usually you're handwriting into the N-400, which is the naturalization application form. It usually works pretty well and 
we'll always have way down on hand and extra pages um, for you know any errors that need to be corrected. Before the client leaves the workshop, we will have them sign all of the relevant signature pages and make sure that we have all uh, copies of all their relevant documents as noted on the control sheet for their particular application type. And that's because after the workshop, we are gonna take that application that you completed and all of the documents that were collected, and we're going to prepare an application packet for the client, something that will be sent to USCIS. And then every single application will have quality control done by myself or Jonah. We will also be in attendance at the workshops, either one or both of us. So you don't have to worry that you'll be, you know, figuring it all out yourself. You'll always have the opportunity to raise your hand, let one of us know, and Joan and I will come over there and we'll, we'll help answer your question. Once an application packet has been approved by myself or by Jonah, the application will be filed with USCIS on the client's behalf by the staff at Rian. We will then also send them a copy of their application for their records, as well as informational sheets that explain the next steps in their immigration process. So we'll explain to them, you know, USCIS is gonna send you these notices and then you will get your green card in the mail or whatever it is that's gonna happen once their application is sent into the government. Okay, before I move on to some additional tips, are there any questions about the workshop itself? If you've ever attended a project citizenship or a Miro one, I think it's very similar. You just might not be doing a citizenship application. Okay, seeing none, I'll move on to some, some tips and then we'll have plenty of time for questions, I think. Okay, as I was saying, there are many of our clients who do not speak English fluently. Um, this is really common of a lot of immigrant populations. Um, and so there may be instances in which you know, you'll be using your own second language skills um, or first language skills, I guess, depending on, on you know, what language you learned first. Um, or you may be working with an interpreter to complete the application forms with a client. And so we wanted to go over sort of some best practices for working with an interpreter. When using an interpreter, you wanna avoid statements like tell the client or ask the client this. You want to talk directly to the client and just let the interpreter, like literally interpret what you say. So if I was working with Jonah, I would, if Jonah was my client, I would just say, Jonah, please tell me when you came to the United States, not interpreter, please ask Jonah when he came to the United States. You wanna talk directly to the client and just let the interpreter interpret. You wanna make sure the interpreter interprets every question that you ask and that that person is not answering the questions for the client. A lot of the interpreters will have at Forms Workshop will be third-party volunteers. Um, so folks in the community who you are interested in using their language skills to help out this, this population of people. And so I think it will be less common that they'll be answering questions on behalf of the client because they, they won't know anything. But you sometimes see people, you know, who bring their daughter or their son or their son-in-law and ask you know, their relative to, to serve as the interpreter. And sometimes family members will just answer questions for their relative. They'll be like, oh, my mom came on this day. That's not what you want. You want to insist that they actually interpret the question and you get the answer directly from the client because sometimes their kids don't know everything and you want to make sure you're, you're getting an accurate answer. 
Um, yeah, and so if the interpreter is a family member, you also wanna make sure it's appropriate to go over any sensitive subject matter. A lot of immigration forms ask people if they've ever been arrested, if they've ever been charged with a crime, if they've ever been you know, a prostitute. There are a lot of really sensitive questions on these forms. And sometimes people don't want their kids to know that they were arrested once, but to accurately complete the naturalization application, you might need to know that as the person preparing their form. Um, and so you wanna make sure that, you know, if somebody does bring their kid and they say like, oh, my daughter can interpret, that they really understand that, you know, they might be talking about some of these sensitive things in front of their family member. Okay, so like I was saying, many USCIS forms include sensitive questions about things like gambling, drug use, prostitution, abuse, being arrested, being a terrorist. Um, these questions are confusing. Clients often get confused about why you're asking them all of these sort of sensitive and kind of weird questions, but they're needed to complete the form. And so we recommend explaining to clients when you get to that section of the form, there's a section on the TPS application, the naturalization application, that you explain to clients that you understand these are kind of weird questions that, and that it's something that USCIS requires everyone to answer. And so you're not asking them if they've ever been a prostitute because you'll, you, know, you think that might be true of them, but because you're literally just going over the, the questions that USCIS has put on this form and you need to make sure you have the right information to complete it. Many USCIS forms also contain a lot of legalese. They are not written to make sense to non-lawyers. Um, and you might find that clients seem confused by the legalese. And when that happens, feel free to rephrase the question or provide an explanation. If you know, you're not usually in the immigration world and you are also confused by the legalese, which also might happen, um, you can always flag down myself or Jonah or anyone else who's supervising the workshop and ask us to help and we can help clarify what a question means. Um, many of our clients have experienced traumatic events in the past. We do a lot of what we call post-asylum and post-refugee benefits, which means helping them, helping people who have asylum status or refugee status get their green cards or bring additional family members that maybe they had to leave behind when they fled their home country. It's a best practice when doing sort of those ancillary applications to avoid asking unnecessary questions about folks' traumatic history. Um, it's better to just stick to the things that you need to know to complete the form, rather than asking them questions that might risk re-traumatizing them or bringing back those traumatic experiences. At the end of the workshop, when you have clients sign their forms, it's also good to remind them and make sure they understand that they're swearing all of the information in their application is true and that USCIS will run their fingerprints and complete a background check as part of the application process. This is one of those fancy federal government background checks, which means it will find things that are expunged or sealed. Um, and so sometimes, you know, people forget to tell us those things because they think they don't know that about them but the federal government always knows. <laughs> so making sure people understand that they've got to disclose, you know, all of those things um, because USCIS will find them one way or the other. Okay. All right. So that brings us to the end 
what Jonah and I had, unless Jonah, you have something else to add, but we are happy to field any other questions you might have about the workshop. And I think Noah put into the chat the link to sign up and I recognize some of your names um, from our volunteer registration link. And so I know some of you are already signed up and we're very excited to have you. Is there anything else we can answer? Or Jonah, you wanna add? Yeah. As as Noah said, feel free to submit any questions through the Q&A function. I, I want to reiterate something that Laura mentioned, which is that at any point, if you feel uncomfortable or confused yourself, um, whether it's because you don't know if the interpreter is doing a good enough job or you have some concerns about the quality of interpretation or you are confused when filling out the form or really just want uh, confirmation, uh, please feel free to flag us down at the forms workshops or the reason that we're going to be there is to support you and help you um, and make sure that this ends up running as smoothly as possible. So don't feel as though you need to fudge something or just kind of do some guesswork. It's always better to just take a couple of minutes to clarify something and make sure that everyone correctly understands what a question asks or um, ensure that you are getting the best information because at the end of the day, uh, the person that would be in the biggest risk is that the individual that we're ultimately trying to help if the forms aren't filled out correctly. I'll give it a second if anybody has any questions. And please feel free to ask a question either about the first half of the presentation, the second half, or also something that we didn't cover entirely, but that has come to your mind about um, volunteering for the forms workshop or um, any kind of doubts or hesitations you have about um, participating. So I see there's a question if we prefer volunteers work with laptops or with hard copies in the workshop. There, I have no, I don't think we have any real preference as long as your handwriting is legible. Beautiful, seeing no other questions so far. Also, anyone feel free to submit any while we start wrapping up. So I'm going to talk very slowly. <laughs> but again, thank you to our presenters. Thank you to our attendees. I'm not doing a good job of talking slowly. <laughs> but um, again, huge thank you to everyone. And um, we hope to see you on October 20th and, uh, at the BBA for the in-person workshop. Um, a link was sent in the chat in case you would like to sign up and access the, the, um, the registration link that way. And yeah, and with that being said, I'm going to wish everyone a good rest of their day. And again, please thank you to everyone. Hope to see you on October 20th. Have a good one, everyone. Thank you. Bye, everyone.